You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. What's up, music lovers? This is the Modern Musicology Podcast. And let me take a second to introduce your co-host to you. We have singer, songwriter, former drummer of the Aquanetas, Stephanie Seymour. Hello, people. We have DJ and journalist Rob Levy. Sup. We have music enthusiast and our resident Brit, Anthony Williams. Yeah, boy. Oh, oh, God. God. <laughs> you want me to just do a hi? That's so British of you. <laughs> and my name is Alan, drummer, author, just all around ne'er-do-well. So <laughs> this week, we are going to be talking about hip-hop. 50 years ago, Cindy Campbell threw a party in the rec room of her family's Bronx apartment building at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue and charged admission. 25 cents for ladies, 50 cents for fellas, to raise money to buy back-to-school clothes. And she asked her older brother, Clive, to DJ. Clive spun his collection of soul and funk records, and he and his friend Coke LaRock shouted out spontaneous rhymes over the instrumental breaks, which he lengthened by using two turntables, a mixer, and two copies of the same record. And with that, hip-hop was born, and the musical paradigm shifted. So we are going to be talking about 50 years of hip hop and the legacy it's left and the struggle it had for acceptance and all sorts of things. Our personal history with it. It's going to be an interesting show. I'm looking forward to it. So let's talk about how we each came into an awareness of or appreciation of rap and hip hop. Alan, we were talking before the show about how we got into it, and it seems like our paths were a little bit similar. But for me, I think the first memory I have of something resembling rap, and there that definitely was rap, was uh, Sugar Hill Gang, Rapper's Delight, which came out in 1980. And, you know, I was saying to you earlier also, I feel like in my mind, when I was maybe 13 or so when that came out, I didn't really know. I didn't really think of it as a rap record. I might have thought of it more as a dance kind of dis- I mean, that was like the disco era, sort of end of the disco era. And so I I didn't really know what I was hearing. But later, I guess it was maybe a year or two later, a year later, I think, Blondie had uh, released Rapture as a single. So that really hooked me because I was like, who the hell is Fat Five Freddy? I want to know who that is. <laughs> And who is this cool dude dancing in the video? Um, So that really, really hooked me. But I then think what really got me into into rap was Run DMC, but the single Rockbox. Danceateria, they they used to play that at Danceateria all the time. And it was just, that's just what hooked me. I just, from then on, I was just like, this is so awesome. Yeah, we definitely had parallel paths. I remember I was in 10th grade. It was my first year in high school because we had at, at 
central Florida, we had junior high, which was eighth and ninth grade. So 10th grade was my first time walking into high school and it was big and intimidating and scary. And, you know, I remember hearing the Sugar Hill gang record. It was everywhere. Yes. Like everywhere. And it didn't seem like a new thing that much. It just seemed like maybe it was as you say, a continuation on from the disco movement, because that was, you know, in 79 and into 80, disco was yeah. still pretty hot. It just seemed like yep. another sort of aspect of that. And um, I remember liking it kind of, but I just got so sick of it. You know, it was everywhere. It was overplayed. It and was. I was, you know, I was a little rock and roll kid. I was Kiss and Rush and all these things, you know, and I just, I don't know. I don't think I really had an appreciation for it. And as you say, a year or so later came Rapture, and I don't think I liked it. Really? Yeah, I liked Blondie. Yeah. You know, I had heard, you know, Blondie stuff ever since Heart of Glass, and I just did not like it. Ugh. Wow. Yeah, I mean. I loved it, it. Yeah, a lot of people did. I mean, and I grew to like it, but at the first, I just didn't. Um, do, so, you, yeah. do you know that was the first uh, number one single in the U.S. to feature rap vocals? A mm -hmm. little bit of trivia. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rob, you came up a couple of years later than than us. How how did you get into it? I first heard what we call this hip hop kid stuff now. Probably similar to you guys. I heard Rapture. Okay. Because my brother played it all the time. My brother played all the Blondie records all the time. And then I started going to the roller rink, the local roller skating rink on weekends. And I started hearing a couple different things seeping through, which I had no idea at the time was related to this. And then probably 83 or 84, I started going to this juice bar by my house called the Animal House. And downstairs was for the weird kids with the angular hair and the makeup and the torn clothes and uh, the punk rock and all the weird stuff. But upstairs, the DJ booth was, and then they had hip hop. So you'd have to go upstairs to like go to the DJ booth. And I was always kind of watching the DJ and watching what he was doing. But by osmosis, I heard a lot of things. And a lot of it is kind of like early days of, of hip hop, kind of the stuff from the wild style soundtrack and, you know, stuff like that. And then, you know, Run DMC really sort of broke down that door, hearing everything from Maya Adidas to Peter Piper. And then My God, Peter Piper is the best song ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember King of Rock was huge at the Royal oh, Rink when it huge. broke. Mm -hmm. They used to play it after ACDC, You Shook Me All Night Long. And um, really, when I was in high school, when the Beastie Boys broke. Yeah. And I would play that cassette a lot. And then I didn't do much with hip hop, really. I had a rep who worked for Island Records mm -hmm. that sent me a bunch of delicious vinyl stuff. And she worked a Gangstar record. I remember uh, the Gangstar record and Paris hearing those. And then some EPMD, which I don't think he worked. No, but uh, Eric B and Rakim was something I worked. Which was yeah, I remember the Eric B and Rakim. And I remember Beautiful. that from the clubs. Hayden Full was in every club. I was underage, but I was sneaking into clubs. And they were all playing Eric B and Rakim. They were playing Hayden Full like crazy. And then the station I was programming director at at the time, it really was weird because we had a guy who was doing a show who was playing a lot of hip hop music. And people were like, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, whoa. But he was very cool about playing everything, you know, radio edits, everything, but it really was freaking people out. And eventually he... Uh, and I had a sit down. I said, you know what? You have the right to play this. I know nothing really about it, but it's cool to hear your show. 
because I listen, it's, to me, it's just all music. So we got him on the air and he had the quote, first official, um, you know, hip hop show in, in St. Louis in cool. 88. So I was around for that whole time when programming, it was weird. And then Steph, I don't know if you sent me this or not, but I was going through stuff this week and somehow I've got a Wu-Tang Clan folder. No, it was not. I didn't work. That was not on my label. Mm -mm. It was the first one though, with like the, where they're all dressed up like an army, you know, yeah, I remember him and I remember being, you know, in, around college radio when Dr. Dre broke also the Wu-Tang Clan. And I, you know, so I would just kind of listen to a lot of it by osmosis. I, I started dating a girl in Brooklyn and I started hearing a lot of things like third base and then Pete Rock and that stuff. And then when I moved to Brooklyn, I couldn't get away from it. I would like just hear it. You know, I worked at Grand Central Station um, at a bookstore and everybody in the back room was playing hip hop. And I, a lot of the times I had no idea what it was because they bought tapes off the street of DJs and they were just putting them on. So I was hearing all that. I'm like, what is this? Right. And then I'd hear cars drive by. It was everywhere. And it was very much a contrast from the Midwest where it was kind of this like weird, oh, kind of, you know, scary thing. And then hearing it like everywhere. And that's when I kind of really realized, you know, this is not going away. And then shortly thereafter, MTV really dug in with Yo MTV Raps and it just took off from there. And it's just kind of been around um, as a genre that I hear. And, and working at a record store, I'd hear tons of stuff too, you know, from 96 to about 2006-ish. I'd hear a ton of it. And then when, when I worked at the library, you know, I, I kind of knew what that what what the kids were down with based on what they were checking out um, at the library. I just wanted to mention, because you mentioned the BC boys and that was at Danceteria that they played cookie puss um, endlessly. Um, that was like their first single that sort of was like not hardcore. I mean, it was like they were sort of integrating samples and rap. So they were just on the scene anyway. So kind of knew them for a long time, but um they they really um became popular because of cookie puss and then you know obviously they were like they had a single out in 84 and they toured they tore i don't know if you remember they opened for madonna they opened for um run dmc as a matter of fact yeah um and then they actually did a, a headlining tour with like murphy's law and fishbone that's um, where i saw them here and yeah they shut they shut down the concert here actually. yeah so it's like that, that was yeah. another thing. Yeah. And, eight, and then 86, of course, licensed to ill, which was huge. So that I just wanted to kind of throw that in as like, that was another one of my. And that, that tour too. with Murphy's Law and Fishbone was a big deal here because oh, yeah. they had a, they had women dancing in cages yeah. above this, above the floor. And they would take girls out of the audience onto the stage. And so, oh man, people. I saw them at the out. world at that, for that show, I think. Yeah. People were. <laughs> flipping out about that it was like you know it's like the world was gonna end man at that time you could play every bit of every metal record you wanted but don't play the hip-hop oh, you know yeah. it was, it was in the midwest that's kind of how it oh, was yeah. it was yeah. kind of like yeah definitely all right anthony i know you have a different origin story than the rest of us yeah being the youngin of the crew so well, lay it on us. it's not just the youngin but it's also growing up in a different culture absolutely so i think we were I was probably, I don't know, it's probably 94, 95 when my parents got cable. So I had access to MTV around that time. And in all honesty, I don't remember seeing much hip hop or rap until about 1997. 
and you know what changed in 97? What? Biggie was killed. Ooh. And that yeah. summer, Puff Daddy put out I'll Be Missing You, which very heavily start sampled Sting's I'll Be Watching You, or the police's yeah. I'll Be Watching You, I should say. And it just seemed like from there on, hip-hop exploded in the UK in a way it hadn't before. And mm. suddenly on MTV, Buster Rhymes was on there with uh, Put Your Hands Where My Eyes Could See. Wu-Tang were on there with Triumph. Biggie was on there with Mo Money, Mo Problems. Uh, what else did we have? Uh, those, I think, were the big hip-hop hits of that summer. And it never really went away after that. It took a while before yeah. the first one I really liked. The first track I remember actually going, oh, fuck yes, to was uh, the rock remix of It's All About the Benjamins, which was, again, <laughs> another Puff Daddy track. But the rock mm -hmm. remix, in addition to Lil' Kim and The Locks and whomever else on the 27 rap artists that were on there, also had... Our boy Tommy Stinson. Ah, it had oh, Dave yeah. Grohl on drums and it had Rob Zombie on it. And, nice. Wow. And I'd kind of seen the Run DMC and um, uh, Aerosmith mashup, right? So Walk This Way had been around for a while, but this this was a little heavier and a little nastier. And I really, you know, like 10 year old me loved it. Mm -hmm. And then honestly, the next thing I remember is like, Three, four years later, you had Dr. Dre coming out with 2001. Eminem broke it big. Outcast released Stanconia. And that kind of that summer of 2000 was when I really started to actually get interested in more hip hop. And I think what helped at the time was you started seeing it more of it blended with metal and you had the whole new metal scene. And I was starting to get more and more into heavier music. So Bands like Linkin Park and Papa Roach and mm. hell, even Limp Biscuit, right? They were doing more and more no, crossover. No. <laughs> but, you know, Limp Biscuit had, uh, I think they had Eminem on a track. They had Dr. Dre on a track. They mm -hmm. were doing a lot of crossover stuff with big hip hop artists. Yeah. Really getting that exposure across genres. And I think at the same time, uh, and this is where I kind of reveal how posh my family was because my parents hired a cleaner at that time who was a, a young Slovakian lady, tiny blonde waif of a lady who was really into hip hop. And she, I, I was like 14 and she would bring me cassettes with whatever she was listening to at the time. And that was pretty cool. Uh, I got to listen to some pretty cool stuff. And that's where I started hearing artists like Nelly and Ja Rule and a few others. And uh, and then, of course, at roughly the same time, the UK scene started exploding. So you had the advent of UK Garage. Uh, I very, very strongly remember So Solid Crew coming out with 21 Seconds, which was really interesting because that, that whole scene is like the, the crossover point between like drum and bass and dance music and hip hop. And that kind of captured my, my imagination as well. And yeah. I guess that's my origin story. That's kind of the early 2000s is when I really started listening to hip hop and rap. Well, you were saying about how it's, you know, the metal, the mix of the metal and the hip hop sort of um, caught your attention and really grabs you. And you're, you're right. I mean, that had, you know, really started obviously with Run DMC and Aerosmith in 86 with Walk This Way. But um, I'm, I was also thinking of other stuff like um, Anthrax. Bring the noise. Yeah. I'm the man. So, and, I think you worked 
I did work anthrax. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I remember you sending me that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, that's okay. No, I'm just, I was just trying to think of like other, there's an, another band. I cannot think of their faith. No more. No. Is that the guy with the long? Yeah. Fa- they, is that the guy original, with the long original, hair? <laughs> like the, the they original, all didn't have long hair. The original faith no more before they got the other singer. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. We care. Even once, um, Oh God, what's his name? Mark, Mike Patton. Once he Mike came Patton. in, they still did a little bit of crossover stuff. I mean, I think about Epic mm-hmm. yeah. and that mm-hmm. had, you know, long wrapped verses. And that's when you start getting into the, Pattern versus Kedis arguments, and the answer's pattern for anyone listening. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> Good to know. It's oh. the only answer. It's not even a question. Yeah. You also had the weird sort of stuff you kind of touched upon us. You had like disposable heroes of hypocrisy, right? And then you had consolidated that were incorporating yes. massive amounts of like hip hop with like quasi industrial music yep. and samples and stuff. And they're kind mm. of like the in between between hip hop and new metal. Yeah, that's a good Basehead, point. Basehead. Well, I think 97 in the UK was when uh, Fuji's really hit big as well with Killing Me Softly. Mm-hmm. I remember that quite vividly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, as as I got into um, hip hop, sort of in the mid, mid 80s, I guess, or early to mid 80s, I then, of course, delved back into the old school hip hop. I mean, that's really what, how I sort of dis- discovered the, the beginning, the origins of it. So I, I guess I came in, you know, in the middle and, and then went back, but because, um, you know, I did, I don't, I know Dougie Fresh now. I know like, you know, Jazzy J and all, you know, all these people that I wouldn't have, you know, necessarily known about when I was 10 or nine or something like that. So that's how I just wanted to know all about the original, the original, the the OGs. That's right. <laughs> well, I was, I just wanted to also say that you know, it's like I, I Rob was saying about how hip and Anthony too, like hip hop was here to stay at some certain point. And I just always used to think, even even in the early days, I, I could not wrap my head around people saying this is like a disposable genre that was going to go away. Like I knew that it, like I I knew it was never going to go away. And I don't, I didn't understand why people thought that it would. It's just, I don't know. It just, that's something that rang so false to me when people said that. Yeah. And I, I think to that point, Stephanie, it says a lot that in his autobiography, my boy, Stephen Wilson says that he thinks guitar music is dead now. Yeah, And it's forms of music that are based on urban music that are, for now, the mainstream. And until rock does something to radically reinvent itself, he doesn't see that changing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I would I would argue that guitar is not dead, but I, I at the same time, it's certainly not to negate the fact that rap is the hugest, you know. Yeah, and I, I think he genre. says that in you know, in the knowledge of it's very, very difficult for a rock artist to go number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Yeah. Right? It's not that it's yes. dead, dead. It's a, it is significantly waned in popularity. And here, one of the reasons why internet radio and college radio and independent radio still do so well is because people want to hear guitar music, whether it's plugged in or it's bluegrass or it's, you know, an acoustic guitar. The, the, the traditional sort of like, rock station in markets is gone and even if it's like a hit music station they're not really playing a lot of stuff with with guitars there are times where the only guitar you'll hear 
during the day is the Eddie Van Halen solos and Michael Jackson records. That might be the only guitar you hear for like, you know, two or three hours if they're playing a Michael Jackson song. And hip hop exploded so quickly and just saturated into suburban white kid culture and then got co-opted by the ad, ad people that it's everywhere and it was never turning back. And once once that, un, that, uh, that Run DMC Aerosmith record broke, I kind of knew that was the end. Um, just something inside me said, this is going to change everything. This stuff is out. And I thought it was great because I loved Run DMC. And I just wanted people to like like Run DMC. Mm-hmm. I, I just thought they were awesome. And actually speaking of that, Rob, I think that was another one that went absolutely stratospheric in the mid to late 90s in the UK was when Jason Nevins did his remix of Run DMC's oh, yeah. It's Like That. That went to number one for something oh like God, six yes. weeks solid in the UK. That was huge. Yeah, it's uh, it's like yeah. that, right? Yeah, that thing is huge. Tommy Boy got really smart and put that out as a remix, and that thing exploded. That broke in clubs over here, and it broke over in England too. And yeah, as um, I said, number yeah. one for six weeks on the run. Wow, absolutely massive. Again, talking about sort of coming into hip hop in the mid '80s, which which we've talked about this on previous show on our 1988 shows. Um, yeah, this was a really what they define as the golden age of hip hop from mid sort of like mid eighties to early to mid nineties. And that is really when I was full on into, into, you know, these bands like sets of Sonic run DMC, of course, as we've mentioned, um, Della soul. Oh my God, what a great album that was boogie down productions. Well, Dallas Hall, I should should clarify that I mean Three Feet High and Rising, which came out in 1989 on Tommy Boy. Amazing. Um, so anyway, I, I, the point being that there were so many new, innovative, also different styles of, of rap at that time. I think there was sort of something for everybody, and it was exciting and new and and it was like a feeling of kind of magic in the air and going to clubs like in the city was just a, that would play the breaking new songs of the time. It was just a, it was a really special time. And again, I know I've stated that on, on the 1988 shows that we did, but I just, I can't stress enough what a, what an innovative and kind of like motivating time that was. Yeah. In it, isn't there an irony to it that, that period was the golden age of hip hop whereas you could argue you could argue now hip hop is the dominant form of music mm. and yet yeah. the golden age yeah. was 20 30 years ago i'm so old god <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well i think too steph and i kind of talked about this once years and years ago i think the big turning point one of the big turning points for this is when tommy boy records decided to have a college radio department mm-hmm. and they started working their hip hop records to college radio. So I was getting calls, you know, from Matador and Warner and all the, you know, sub pop and all these rock labels. And, and then we were getting calls from Tommy boy yeah. and they're like, you gonna play this, you know, you gonna play this. And it was really interesting because they were like arguing that this stuff is just as valid for college radio yeah, as other things. And that's when you started to see kind of before it got integrated into playlists, it was sort of like specialty shows. So totally, I was just going to say that, Rob, specialty shows. I mean, I could not tell you how much 
how many times I had to send my records from Island from Fourth and Broadway and like Delicious Vinyl to the specialty shows because they, you know, it was still not mainstream enough to be played on regular rotation, right? It was mm -hmm. just it was so I, my Eric B and Rakim record was going to the rap specialty show, you know. I I think correct me if I'm wrong, Steph, but I think the three sort of big things I remember breaking were that Eric B. and Rakeem record. And then I remember the first Young MC and that first Tone Loke record yeah. really hit college radio hard. Then they kind of blew up. Yeah. Eric B. and Rakeem was 87, but um, Tone, yeah. Tone Loke and, and Young MC were a little bit later. I think they were like 88, if I remember, 89. Yeah. Tone Loke, the first two singles came out 88 and 89. Yeah. Yeah. I, re I remember those very, very well because, uh, I, you know, I still wasn't, I, I really wasn't in the rap scene at the time. I just did not care for it. It was not my thing. And a lot of that, I, I was really got caught up in that whole situation at that time, you know, being a white suburban kid that, you know, music should be played on instruments. And this was all a not sung. It was wrapped. It was using mostly turntables to you know use other people's music that other people created in order to create the sounds that you're you know making your songs to so i just really had a bias against it and i you know i will say later on came to an appreciation but um it's interesting that you mentioned tone loke was a big thing at the time and i remember it very clearly because even though we knew that a lot of rap records were doing samples this was the first time, at least in my area and to my ears, that they were sampling stuff that I knew really well. Wild mm. Thing sampled Van Halen, Jamie's Crying, very obviously, very clearly used it as the hook of the song. And it's, exactly. Wild Thing is a great song. And it had a huge crossover success. And even I liked it, even though I had the attitude of like, well, they're stealing from one of my favorite bands, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then his second single came out, Funky Cold Medina, which just ripped off every classic rock song under the sun. The main ones being Hot Blooded by Foreigner. Yeah. <laughs> Christine 16 by Kiss. And, you know, you and it's so isolated. It's a, it's a little guitar bit and a snare drum crack. The snare drum, and yeah. And I was like... I know that sound. I know where that came from. So it was a really eye-opening thing for me to kind of hear a rap song using samples that I absolutely recognize the original context of. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. That's cool. But it's funny also that you mentioned 1988. There's when we did our, our shows on 1988, there's one thing that I don't think any of us brought up, and that is wow. Sir Mix-a-Lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, we the, didn't. The You're first, right. The first album came out in 1988. And I remember this goes back to my record store days. I remember, um, you know, we would just crack open rap records and just to see, you know, whether we would like them or not. And most times we did not. But this one, there was two things that I'm thinking of. One of them, there was a song talking about crack cocaine. And I don't think it was on Sir Mix-a-Lot's album. It was somebody else. And I cannot remember who it was. And the they would do a rap about, you know, the situation. And then the, the, the guy would like 
speak from the, the cracks POV, like it's telling somebody to do something. And, and it's sort of like talking about your addiction to it and it runs mm -hmm. your life. And it's like, go steal that woman's purse, this kind of stuff. And it was just the silliest thing. But then the Sir Mix-A-Lot album came out and uh, my friend, Pat Campbell, uh, we would, we cracked it open. We put it on the first song and this is why we cracked it open. The first song is called buttermilk biscuits. And we're like, we have got to hear this. And we put this on and he's, and it's kind of like a, a faux, uh, hoedown kind of thing. And he uses this silly voice in it and we laughed our asses <laughs> off. We played it over and over and over and over. It's so funny. And we weren't, laughing at it this is one right. that we really enjoyed and and i don't know the mix a lot album really kind of changed my attitudes a little bit about rap and you know and then of course later on nwa and and uh, public enemy and those kind of things came out oh, and um yeah. that was a whole new world for me that really was eye-opening for me yeah. And, um, and you know, and I, I kind of liked it in spite of the fact that it was so different from anything else I had ever heard at that point. And a lot of it was because you could tell that they had a knowledge of and appreciation of the R and B and the funk that came before them. Like they built on those, that R and B and that funk tradition in their songs. Yeah. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. And, and that's uh, especially like Stets, true of Stetsasonic and, and their incorporation of not only those styles, but jazz too, you know? So I, I got two things. Firstly, I think Sir Mix-a-Lot's claim to a knighthood might be a bit tenuous. Uh, have some doubts about that. But beyond that, I think, Alan, you just mentioned Public Enemy and NWA. And for me, that was the absolute pinnacle. When hip hop got really political, yeah. Mm -hmm. Before it settled into its kind of bling phase. For yes, me, that's oh, yeah. that's when it's at its most interesting. And I think Public yeah. Enemy to this day are probably one of my favorite hip hop acts. Yep. And I will say Agreed. I will say that those I, I did like those albums. They really appealed to me, but they also scared the hell out of me. Because <laughs> that was brutal stuff. Yeah, it was brutal. It was brutally honest. It was, exactly. I'd never heard anybody say fuck the police before and now you hear us I mean, every other day <laughs> right yeah. it was so prescient at the time only we just didn't know it at the time yeah and i i think this is where it gets difficult having four white people talking about hip-hop because yeah with that politics i think now we're living in an age of continuous media coverage of continuous social media we we see a lot more of what the black community have to go through. Whereas in the late eighties, that felt a lot more dangerous because you didn't see that. So what they were saying felt a lot more subversive to us white folks yes. than it does today. Right. And you're hearing stuff like 911 is a joke and yeah. burn Hollywood burn and fight the power, you know, right. all these, all these th messages. And like you said, fuck the police. Uh, <laughs> all these things that you're, you know, in a way it was super eye opening. I mean, that was, I think I said this in another episode, but like you had to also be open to that message, right? Like if you didn't, if you weren't already knowing this was going on and a lot of people weren't, a lot of people were in denial and they yeah. were just, you know, that's why it was so scary. I think yeah. people just were like, you know, yeah. 
and for me, it was when we were, you know, hitting the juice bar when we were a kid, the lower level was, you know, as I said, where all the punk and weird kids hang, hung out and upstairs was all rap and hip hop. And we didn't care. We'd go up and we'd listen to it. And, we'd, and it was, it was very cool at that age to be exposed to a different variety of cultures and styles and things, but it was very structured in which they did not want, you know, the white kids to go upstairs and listen to the hip hop and they did not want them coming downstairs to watch the bands. Hmm. It was very, and again, this is the Midwest and it's the suburbs and you know, where I live, white flight was a really big thing into the suburbs. It, it pretty much has completely affected everything in St. Louis since, since the fifties. But I grew up, you know, riding the bus to go across town to school. So I had to go through you know, a lot of the inner city neighborhoods. I had friends that lived in the city. I dated girls that lived in some of the worst neighborhoods in the city, which my dad was thrilled about. I was lucky I got exposed to it. Now, being exposed to it and sort of knowing it was out there, I didn't have to live with it every day. And I didn't have to like know everything that was going on. You know, it was still, I was still pretty insul insulated from a lot of it, but I knew that very early on that this was a musical form of people speaking from um, a position of not being where they wanted to be culturally across many levels. And I knew that it was a music that, um, you know, had its roots, you know, in other, I learned very early on from a kid I went to school with who was really into hip hop, telling me about how it was related to West African music. And later I started finding out that people like Cab Calloway and stuff were scatting in the thirties. And they kind of consider that sort of the prequel for, for a lot of hip hop. But I think circling back to other records, I know we talked about the run DMC record, but the world destruction with Africa Bombada oh and God. Johnny Lydon. Oh. Uh, which is 84 so good. really woke up a lot of like the new wave punk kids. Cause yes. they're like, Whoa, wait a minute. What it is did. this? Cause Johnny Lydon really took hip hop on his back and made it a thing. And then the other record, which we've talked a little bit about uh, before was that charity record for sun city mm. that came out that I'm not going to play sun city. There was a record where rockers and rappers were on it at the same time. Yeah. And I remember going, looking at the record going, I don't know who this guy is. He's a rapper, but I'm going to run out and find his records. And I remember trying to find out who everybody was on that record, whereas Band-Aid, I more or less kind of knew mm -hmm. who, who some of these folks were. And that was a pretty big thing, too, because that was getting played. One of the few records that could play up and downstairs when I went to the Animal House, both of those. And I remember going to the record store after World Destruction came out and saying, hey, you got any Africa Bombata? And they were just like, what? And I'm like, do you have any Africa Bombata? No. So then I had to go a couple stores and they're like, no. So finally I went into one in North city and I'm walking into this record store. And, um, it was one of the only times I went into the record store where they had the listening booths. <laughs> the, 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 this guy's looking at me as you want to buy Africa Bombada. And I said, I want to buy Africa Bombada. And he just looked at me. He was like, do you know who Robert Johnson is? I'm like, yes, sir. I know who Robert Johnson is. He goes, all right, I'll sell you the Africa. Bombada." <laughs> <laughs> And I'm just like, I'm like, he goes, how did you hear about this? So I told him about the world destruction record and he's, he just shook his head. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, I grew up at a time where white music and black music at that time in the Midwest was still thought of as two different fundamental universes. And the fact that those were crossing scared the fuck out of people. Um, and the fact that it was giving voice to an oppressed group of people um, in such a way was really also scary for people. So for me, it was like listening to 
hip hop records was almost as subversive as when I started listening to like punk. It was like a big freak out thing for people. You know, when, when some white suburban kids started listening to that, it was like, oh my God, which begat another thing we talk about the sort of the whole movement with the PMRC, right? Speaking of the PMRC, um, another thing, you know, I grew up in central Florida and uh, another thing that really kind of crossed my path in a big way. I don't know if y'all remember this, but two live crew, Oh, which yeah. was out of Miami and oh my God, they were, they were hardcore in a, oh, in yeah. a like a sexually explicit kind of way in a way yeah. that nobody had heard at that time. And it was, it was shocking. And, you know, in the same way that that WAP is mm-hmm. like, you know, kind of shocking today. This was like, nobody had ever done anything like that at that time. And they got into all sorts of legal battles and, uh, Supreme court stuff. And they had people like the, uh, first amendment people and other artists who were championing them, their, their freedom of speech and all this kind of stuff. It was, it was crazy. And And that was all over MTV for the longest time was the, every time we turn on Kurt Loder, (laughs) there's some story about two live crew and the first amendment and their, and their, their battles. Mm. And I, re- I remember when they they flagged Springsteen coming out of a restaurant. It's like, what do you think of this two live crew record? And it's like, free country can make whatever record he wants. You know, <laughs> I obviously knew about it because they asked about it. And if I don't have a problem with it, why does anybody? Right. <laughs> and that really people don't people kind of downplay. But that was kind of a big deal yeah. with somebody of like Springsteen stature. And at, at around the same time, you had Aerosmith putting sort of their stamp on it as well that really sort of made critics realize this is not a novelty. This is not a, um, a one-off. This is a cultural form of expression, you know, that's going to be around. I also think too, how we talked about people didn't think it was going to be around. And I, and Anthony can kind of attest to this too. I don't think people thought it was going to really extend to other borders and other countries and be a thing. Right. Um, And it just, it just exploded all over the world. Yeah. And when you look at that in the UK, it's interesting because the UK didn't really have its own big rap scene until probably about 2000, right? That's when I remember So Solid Crew. That's when I remember uh, Wookie. There were a few others. I think Oxide and Neutrino were pretty big at that point in time. Uh, and um, and then, of course, out of that, the grime scene exploded. And that's where you start seeing Dizzy Rascal and uh, Lethal Bizzle and Stormzy and artists like that that over there now just completely dominate the music scene. I've heard of Stormzy. And the Streets. That first Streets record was fantastic. Uh, which one? A Grand Don't Come For Free? Yeah. Yeah. I forget about the Streets. I don't know why. But yeah, I mean, uh, and then, of course, on the UK scene, you also have the, the par- parody genre that is chap hop, which I think is... The best thing ever. Thank you for turning me on to that today. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I was literally today years old when I heard about this thing. Thank you, Anthony. I mean, you know, rap rap in an upper class British accent, rapping about tea and living life like it's the 1880s. It's just, it's brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) But also referencing all the cool hip hop bands, you know, it's really... It's really clever, actually, and and some of them actually have a really uh, a really good meaning. So, Mr. B did a track called "Hip Hop Was to Blame After All," which is all about how hip hop actually sold sold out. 
basically mm. and how you know yeah. you get artists talking about the community but in the end what they're actually doing is just taking the money and running and not supporting the communities that they came from yeah, so. wow that's an interesting perspective oh and one recommendation from the british scene uh mid to late 2000s a duo came out one was the mc one was the dj dan lasak versus scroobius pip yes i was just about to talk so about this. incredibly yes. intelligent lyrically um er, tackle some really big themes uh first exposure i had to them was a track called thou shall always kill and um, yes and one of the lyrics was, Thou shall always remember that guns, bitches, and bling were never part of the four elements and never will be. Wow. Yeah. I played, oh man, I'm old. I played that. I played the shit out of that on my show when I first started. And they, they did three albums and then went their separate ways. And they said it was only ever planned to be yeah. a short term thing. And people forget too that the KLF started as the Justified Asians and they were like these Scottish guys rapping. Yeah over records and like their 1987 record which sampled everybody got destroyed because they sampled abba and abba sued them and they basically had to destroy every copy of the album that they had at the time and so that was kind of a thing and too the, um you know the kind of final version of america that they did that was called what time is love that that yes. one has a lot of rap on it along with the legendary glenn hughes as the voice of rock but that that track is just amazing and i think introduced again a whole new audience to hip-hop over in the uk yeah and what time is love is interesting because the first version of it is a trance record yeah. and it revives trance yeah as a as a genre whatever that means and then they put our rappers on their records and it explodes you know everything from 3m eternal to what time is love to trans central and but it really use pop and rap in a very interesting way not to be putting a damper on things and i don't mean to be I, i've said this about when we were talking in our metal show but it's interesting just to note that again this is such a male dominated genre where you really only had and have a few standout female acts or you know solo artists in the genre um, and I'm thinking specifically of like Salt and Pepper, who are so groundbreaking, and Queen Latifah, um, MC Light. I mean, there's others, obviously, but like it's Missy just Elliot. yeah, Missy, yeah, Neil Kim. yeah, oh yeah, I love her. But again, not there's not a ton, right? So and, and much like metal, I think that's something where we're seeing a lot of change right now because yes. you're seeing. I mean, mm -hmm. 10 years ago-ish, Nicki Minaj broke out on the scene, and yeah. as a person, she's kind of problematic. But as an artist, she was really interesting. And then more recently, you've had um, Megan The Stallion. Uh, mm -hmm. You've had uh, Cardi B, Doja Cat. Yeah. You know, and and they're really blowing up. And so I think that the genre is starting to embrace women a lot more. And that is good, you know, because because at, at the time, especially when it was like going into the more from more of a like fun party-ish thing into then the politically conscious movement, then into really almost like the gangster rap, you know, and then the money bitches and whatever. That was, I think, very much hard for a woman to break into that whole money bitches and whatever scene, you know? Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> it wasn't really as common. And so, yes, I do agree that now, things are, are are much broader and opening up and and you see many more and I, now which is i great. also think of that might 
partially be a function of streaming, right? So mm-hmm. as artists mm. can get onto SoundCloud and what have you, it allows the audience to find more of what they like. So if you've got young women saying, well, I like this hip hop genre, but I want to find someone who's more representative of me, those people are yeah. out there and you don't have to rely on something being pushed by a record label anymore. And Yeah, I like the metal genres and, too, like you were saying. You know, I think Doja Cat... As an example, I forget whether she came out of SoundCloud or, or TikTok, but she came out of a streaming TikTok, platform I think. and has just blown up ever since. Yeah. Yep. Last year, ABC did a special called The Real Queens of Hip Hop, The Women Who Changed the Game. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know about it, but I caught it maybe 15 minutes into it. And it was fantastic. Ooh, it was so I haven't been able to find it since then. I don't oh. think that ABC has has run it since then. And I haven't found it on maybe there's an ABC on demand. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I haven't found it streaming anywhere. But uh, I should look for it again because it was so fantastic. It was an excellent, excellent documentary. Oh, cool. So I think one genre we haven't touched on a lot is the Southern hip hop scene. I mean, I mentioned Outcast mm. very briefly, but to me, Outcast was such a game-changing and influential artist. And I think if you don't have Outcast, you don't have the crunk scene. And I think the crunk scene in turn led to the trap scene, which candidly, I think the trap scene sucks. Um, not for <laughs> me at all. But hey, there are plenty of people out there who like it. But Outcast are, are, were just brilliant. I mean, everything from their first album, AT Aliens, through to when they really hit the big time with Miss Jackson on the Stanconia album before doing something like Hey Ya and ultimately going their separate ways, I think as a legacy, you know, the legacy those two left behind, Andre 3000 and Big Boy, was just huge. Well, also, and I don't, I guess before that, Arrested Development with like Tennessee mm-hmm. and that was such a great, that was such a great album. The, what is it? Um five years three years five months i'm gonna have to look it up but whatever the album (laughs) and you you have the you know a lot of this southern hip-hop thing really takes off too with master p starting up his own label and putting out when i was at a record when i was the record store master p's label was putting out a rap record every week and it was just like please stop this is too much it was like killing the market but it really put atlanta on a hip-hop map you know, and I think out of that sort of came a big filter that that gave us Outcast. You know, it was like people were looking for something, and that was really, really good. Yeah, it was, it was um, Outcast, and it was Goody Mob. I think were the two big ones that came out of it. Oh man, yeah. I'd forgotten about Goody, Goody Mob. Mob. Yeah, the other we were talking about um, female rappers too. I think really a lot of this sort of started to change. I mean, people forget when when Queen Latifah and MC Light hit, it was like a bomb went off, right in hip hop, but when we got to the Lauren Hill record, the miseducation of Lauren Hill, that thing was everywhere. That record was like, I think I sold one every day for eight years at the record store and it still gets played a ton. Uh, it had a huge crossover appeal too, which I also think helped. Um, I was going to also mention the DC scene with um, go-go music. Yes. Huge. I mean, yes. like that was, it had its day for like a couple years, but it really had its day. And- and, and Go-Go thing is, Go-Go is still huge in, in D.C. and Baltimore now, right? Mm, I love that, Go-Go like, music. That D.C.-Baltimore um, corridor is just rich. And even mm-hmm. Northern Virginia is just really rich with, like, 
hip hop and R and B music too. Yeah. We haven't really delved in much to West Coast. I mean, I talked, we kind of touched upon it, but NWA. I think, but yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, when we get into like you know, Tupac and NWA and and some of that stuff, we hadn't even mentioned Tupac up until this point. Mm. Yeah, and those Tupac, those those Tupac records, those things were amazing. And the thing about Tupac is he's the first hip hop artist I remember reading his lyrics, if you want to, you know, whatever lyric as without the music and going, okay, this is almost poetry. This is the first time I remember reading and going, this is someone that's really saying something that's pretty deep, but it was like, it, it stood out away from the music, if that makes any sense. And, you know, that whole East coast, West coast hip hop thing. I, if that wouldn't have been violent, I think the sort of like commercial takeover of that music form that we have now, that mainstream thing would have happened five to 10 years earlier if we didn't have all the East Coast, West Coast stuff. And it's still there. It's still very much a thing, especially since, you know, we lost Nipsey Hussle and, you know, a couple other folks too. It's still very much a thing. We also haven't talked about like Eminem and stuff like that, but I don't know if we want to. I mean. Well, the Eminem record was, the Eminem stuff just blew up because it was a white guy from Detroit, right? So but there was white guys from, I mean, MC, look at, uh, what's his name? Um, there were, but he was the first one that wasn't really sugarcoated, right? Vanilla Ice, sorry. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, speaking of sugarcoated. He, he wasn't sugarcoated, but he was also kind of no. funny. And his and his yeah. videos were very cartoony. I mean, I think, yeah. I don't know what he hit in 99, 2000, um, around yeah. that time. Nine. Yeah, yeah I, I was yeah. like 12 years old when he hit. And... You know, a lot of the themes in his music, a lot of the language is candidly inappropriate for a 12 year old. But yes. the the cartoon nature of his videos, like not actual cartoons, but they're, they're very exaggerated. They're very stylized. They really drew like my age group into his music, even if they were censored on MTV. And, and his hooks, his hooks were incredible. Yeah. And he was, you know, one of Dr. Day's, Dr. Dre's protégés. So you can, yes. again, kind of trace that lineage back through, oh, yeah. um, you know, NWA. And I think the song from 8 Mile is really sort of what changed people's opinion of, of Eminem. Oh, yeah, totally. And then, yeah. and then he was doing this thing like, well, I'm not playing the Grammys and I'm not doing this, you know, or I'm not playing award shows and just not blatantly not playing along with the industry. Mm-hmm at a time when a lot of other people doing that kind of music were, was really interesting too. I haven't even talked about my boy Snoop Dogg. No. Oh, Snoop. My God. I love his I friendship love with Martha Stewart. I think that's my favorite <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> it is the best. All right. Anything, any last bits before we. I'm going to end on Martha Stewart. I, no, I, I, <laughs> I, I have a slightly funny question to ask. Oh, okay. So there okay. are lots of rapper names that are quite punny. Are there any favorites out there? My personal one is Edgar Allan Flo. I think Nipsey Hussle is hilarious. Yeah. That's I think that's my genius. Favorites. Yeah. And I, I still like, it's not really funny or punny, but I still love Childish Gambino. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Speaking of Southern hip Southern hip hop, um, I just still think that's a great name too. But that when I first heard Nipsey Hussle, I'm like, what's this guy named Nipsey Hussle? And I'm like, all right. <laughs> and I'm from St. I could go with that. And then uh, I had to explain to someone um, who I was working with at the time who was African-American, who Nipsey Russell was, which was awkward. <laughs> um, 
But the other thing too is I, being from St. Louis, we have the St. Lunatics, which I thought was incredibly <laughs> funny as well because it's kind of a that's good a, a clever play here. Yeah. You don't have any Stephanie. Not that I can think of off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> if I hadn't come across uh, Nipsey Hustle today when I was doing some reading, <laughs> I would not have even thought of it. I did like I did like Cool Modi. I thought that was a cool name. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was I was um, even up until I saw him a couple of years ago. I always thought Grandmaster Flash was like the best name ever. Yeah, that's a great for someone name. for for a name. I'm like, that's all right. And even Cool Herc, right? That's like. That's like a strong, solid sort of like yeah. name. I like that too. So they're not necessarily punny, but yeah. I I just have like a favorite that's not a punny either, but Quest Love. Like it's so sweet and I love it. It's you so know? sweet. Yeah. It is. I Quest love Quest Love. I it's love him. Also, he's just beautiful. the greatest yeah. dude. I know. And the Roots, man. Oh my God, the oh Roots. Oh God. Yeah. I know. That record ninety nine that dropped, whatever that one was. That thing was. We sold a ton of those too, and. The musicianship on that is phenomenal. All right. Well, I think we should wrap it up here. We'll take a quick break. We'll throw in an ad for one of our fellow podcasts on our network, and we'll be right back in 30 seconds. I saw what you did there with Wrap It Up, Alan. Oh, I didn't <laughs> know that. Oops. Soul Forge Podcast. It's a geeky look at love, life, fandom, mental health, pop culture, and so much more. If you're into learning about yourself and the universe, Soul Forge is your podcast. Each week, we have a surprising new topic. From stupid things we do for love, to product reviews, and there's almost always a fun guest host. Like and subscribe to Soul Forge Podcast today. Okay, so we're back. Um, this is our this is our first time all four of us together in a in a short while. Mm-hmm. Has anybody got anything that they've been listening to this past week that they want to uh, throw out a mention of? I do. Okay. Yeah. I know it's weird. No, it's not. It's not for me. (laughs) Rick Springfield has a new album out and (laughs) there's a new video called automatic and I love it. It's, I think it's, I just, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty poppy and catchy and you know, He's cute still, and I love him. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! No, it is a catchy song, and it's a it's a kind of a flashy video, and it, it it's a good pop tune. So Rick Springfield touring with Paul Young. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes, he is, and there's someone else on that, I believe. Someone else on that tour. There's a couple uh, like '80s ish artists on that. My my listening the last few weeks has been. All in, in all honesty, all over the place. Stephanie in our text often says that she loves my musical 180s. And yes. So there are a few things I want to give a shout out to. Firstly, uh, the inspiration for our next show, or at least my inspiration for our next show, is the, the hit of the summer, apparently, is a parody track by Kyle Gordon called Planet of the Bass, which is hilarious. It's very much a... 90s Eurodance parody, and yet it's fantastic. Uh, I've also been listening to a lot of Kill Switch Engage, so there's that 180. Um, wow, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of I, I don't know, I've just been really into the kind of melody that they have in their tracks and that uh, kind of combination of, of hardcore with heavy metal and doing a lot of that. 
And then last but not least, a, an actual early 2000s throwback, iPad, Murder on the Dance Floor by Sophie Ellis-Bexter, more or less on repeat, because it's been fantastic. Like You hmm. you sent that to us, or you, you put that in our, our chain, and I was like, listen to that. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that pre-chorus <laughs> is so catchy. I just love it. Rob, I know you have a list. Uh, so this has been a weird week because literally everybody's dropping stuff. I've got like 10,000 things going on and then everybody's dropping records. It's like, stop it. Um, so OMD's dropped uh, Baja Staircase, uh, their new single. And what they say is going to be their last record and their last tour. Um, it's pretty poppy. It sounds exactly like you thought it would be. Um, but it's more of an earworm than I expected. Um, so there's that. I woke up the other day and found out there were two new records by The National, um, which is pretty great. They have uh, Space Invader and Alphabet City. They're both new cuts from them uh, that have dropped. That's great. And completely unbeknownst to me, the Aphex Twin is back with uh, Black Box Life Recorder 21, an EP of like five songs. And I'm like, when did this come out? And why is it 1997 again? Um, it's literally like waking up in 97 with all this stuff. Um, and I, I know I texted, I've been driving Steph nuts, nuts about this. Um, there's a fantastic band in the two thousands called granddaddy. They were so like, um, melancholically sad in a way that the Smiths weren't. Um, but they put out a record called, um, someday and then software slump and a couple other great records. But they basically took everything they had from someday. They're putting out a vinyl box set for the 20th anniversary of it. Um, and they've released that digitally as someday excess baggage. And it's just uh, incredibly great. So I recommend that. And then weirdly, I found this a band on Sharon Jones' Daptones label called The Olympians. Their album is called The Olympians. If you're a fan of just old school funk, that is for you. It is just fantastic. I'm a fan of old school I mean, funk. The Olympians, the musicianship okay. on that is incredible, right? It's great. Okay. Um, I love that tons. And um, man, it's just blown me away. And I've gotten, I used to listen to everything on Daptones um, when it came out, and I've sort of gotten behind it now, and I'm trying to catch up. But that record from the Olympians, self titled, it's fantastic. Well, guess who put out a new album this past week? maybe maybe a little well actually we're recording our shows out of order so it might be a few weeks ago when people hear this Susie Quattro what really right? mm -hmm. she has a new yeah. album with KT Tunstall it's mm -hmm. called Face to Face the first single was called Shine a Light and I'm gonna say it's not too bad oh wow I, I was completely surprised to see Susie Quattro come up in my list of new releases unbelievable that's so, crazy. I would never have thought she would have no, <laughs> ever had anything. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. And, and she still sounds great. And of course, you know, when you got Tunstall playing and singing on it, it's going to be good. So yeah, I'd, I'd say go check that out. And guess who put out a couple of new singles since the last time we've talked about him? Peter Gabriel. Yep. Guess who hasn't paid attention to it at all? Oh, me. Because I really lost interest in this entire thing because he just keeps not putting out an album. Yep. I <laughs> put same way. the fucking album out. Yes, please. Oh my god, it's driving there's a they're, they're running a trailer now for the uh for the IO tour coming to America. 
Put the and, and it's all focused on old songs. Put the fucking album out. Oh my <laughs> god, it is driving me bananas. So I, I've just stopped paying attention to whatever he's done until he puts that out. Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely feeling the same way on that, Alan. It's it's mm-hmm. hard because yeah, it feels like the whole album's already out. What else is going to be on it? I was going to say, well, is it not already out? This well, is, no, because when you look at the, mad, yeah. when you look at the set list for the show, it's a billion oh. songs of, uh, that are all new. So there is a ton of tracks on this thing. Apparently, he's released eight so, eight singles so far. Yeah, that's dumb. <laughs> there are going to be twelve on it. Yeah. This is a new thing that people are doing. Part of it is they want to get their songs out as they do them and perfect them and get them right. And part of it is musician musicians get paid more. Yep. Um, when they release individual singles than albums. So if they release everything as one track at a time. I understand, but I also, as an artist, I don't want to release my songs. If I put out an album, I want it to be an album or an EP. I understand what they're doing, but I just don't know if I agree with it. So, And Gabriel seems like an album guy. Yeah. He doesn't seem like the, the modern you know, landscape of releasing a hundred singles in a row. Anyway. Yeah. And uh, that, that's just my feeling about it. And that. I'm sure that P Gabe, my boy P Gabe already has enough <laughs> money. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Right. And by the way, this trailer for this tour coming all across North America. Well, it isn't cause it isn't coming anywhere in the South. So screw you, Peter Gabriel. <laughs> Not oh, really. God. I still, I still worship at your feet, Peter Gabriel, but come on, dude. All right, so that's it for this week. Stephanie, where can folks find more about you? You can find me on Stephanie Seymour Music on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram at there underscore are underscore birds. Uh, I also have a website, therearebirds.com. And uh, you can find me on Bandcamp and all the streaming platforms like Spotify and stuff like that. All right, Rob, go. So you can find me on uh, Threads and Post and Blue Sky and uh, the artist formerly known as Twitter and Facebook um, because my friend Widget Walls has gotten me addicted to this. Uh, but it's all on Linktree, so just do that. Um, you can find me on the Weekend Justice podcast for freecoffee.com. You can find me on Mondays um, with Louder Than War Radio and um, Antics, uh, my show there that I just almost forgot the name of. Um, which is from six to eight Monday nights, um, Greenwich Mean Time, uh, one to three East Coast Time, twelve to two Central. That's Mondays, and all of those shows are streaming at uh, the Louder Than Ward Mixcloud page. The first twenty-five editions of those are up on their Mixcloud. You can go back and listen to those on archive. And then mon- on uh, Wednesdays, yeah, I'm on Wednesdays, Wednesday nights. Uh, <laughs> I'm on uh, KDHX uh, with Juxtaposition from seven to nine PM Central. All of those shows are archived. So if you're out and about, if you're um, releasing the mongoose to keep the cobras out of your yard or whatever it is you're doing, you can uh, check it out at kdhx.org. All the shows are archived uh, for two weeks. So you can listen to that and scare the kids. All right, Ant, hit us. All right. So by the time this goes out, my podcast, Watches in the Fourth Dimension, should be back. So uh, check us out. We're watching our way through all of Doctor Who from 1963 until the present day. We've been on a seven-month hiatus, uh, so you can find us on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever kids get their podcasts these days. You can find us there. You can also follow us on the the socials, uh, Facebook, 
Instagram and Twitter or X or whatever the fuck it's known as this week at <laughs> at Watches 4D. And if you want to check me out personally, I'm on Instagram at Englishman in ATL. And I've got a couple of other podcasts that I devote lots and lots of time to. One of them is Earth Station Trek. It is a show all about Star Trek. I bet you would never have guessed that. And the other one is Doctor Who A to Z, and it's all about Doctor Who. I get you, bet you would never guess that either. All right. We will be back next week. Everybody take care. Have a great week and keep rocking on. Or rapping on. Rapping. Yeah. Word. Don't be fronting. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.